Sandman. Thank you. Progressive Radio Network. The Thinking Person Station. In what we're doing now, we are getting through a feel of the world that is neither organic nor What it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary, involuntary, we don't know the contrast organically. All right, folks, welcome back. This is Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host. Vince Emanuele, you are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you could find us here every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. for my West Coast friends. So we have a good program in store for you today. We'll be speaking with Paul Street in a few minutes. What the hell happened over the weekend? Um, well, there was a good event last night. I spoke at this event, or the Earth to Trump uh, resistance Roadshow, which I think has a great ring to it. Nonetheless, it's, it was a series of events put on by the Center for Biological Diversity and also, I want to say 350.org. I, they seem to have a big presence there, but I don't know. Actually, no, now that I'm looking at it, it was uh, organized solely by, or not solely by, but it was, how do I say this? It was uh, sponsored by the Center for Biological Diversity. So it was a great event. Uh, I'd say at least a few hundred people there, several different groups tabling and speakers that Alderman Carlos Rosas from the 35th Ward, Chicago's 35th Ward. They also had David Bender from the American Indian Center, uh, Ashley Williams, who is a student and an activist and an organizer. I should actually call her an organizer. Uh, she was one of the people who put the event together, along also with Olga Batista, who gave an amazing speech today in Atlanta. Olga, for those of you who don't know, is an organizer on the southeast side of Chicago. So my former neighborhood, the 10th Ward, Fast Eddie's former neighborhood as well. She's excellent. She's was the lead organizer for the southeast side coalition to ban pet coke you know they took on the coke brothers in that campaign and they won they also kicked out a machine democrat and john pope and replaced him with a progressive activist in alderman sue sadlowski garza who grew up with my mom so the neighborhood is a small place <laughs> for those who are aware for those who've been to the southeast side of chicago it's a small place and we we're everywhere doesn't matter where the hell I go. It could be on the West Coast. I could be in Florida. I could be overseas. I always end up running into somebody from that neighborhood. Nonetheless, Olga Batista made us very proud today, and as she has, I guess, for her whole life, but particularly today in this uh, event for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta. I don't know what the name of the event was. All I know is she's sitting on stage with Bernie Sanders and all these other big shots, and I just, I really... Really got a kick out of that. I thought that was awesome. So congratulations to Olga for being recognized for all this awesome work she's been doing on a local level. So, yeah, the event last night was good. 
Um, I was the last speaker to give a talk, and it turned out great. I thought the audience loved it. A uh, lot of interesting people. The music was great. The musicians had a lot of interesting things to say about what they were doing. They had been following this road show from the West Coast all the way to Chicago, and then they're going to go uh, to Washington, D.C. So all of this will culminate in the January 20th inauguration for Trump. They're all going to gather there, protest, and so on. So, yeah, I thought it was good. So thanks to the Center for Biological Diversity for having me out, and it was a pleasure to participate in the event. Also, another great event put on by the local, actually, this is, well, I'm getting things mixed up. This is the local 350 group, 350.org group that put on last year the Break Free from Fossil Fuels events that were sort of a global series of events. Activists in Whiting, Indiana got arrested outside of the 41, so we're calling them the Whiting 41, outside of the BP refinery. And for those who don't know, the BP refinery in East Chicago and in Whiting is the largest tar sands refinery in the Western Hemisphere. So that is primarily the place where the tar sands from Alberta, Canada are being processed. I don't think many people know that, and it's, again, I think a sign of how on some levels, how weak the environmental movement is in the Chicagoland area, that this isn't a major point of contention, but also the fact that it's gaining, that these movements are gaining strength, I think is obviously not only a good thing, but a, some glimmers of hope there. And local organizers such as Olga, Ashley, Thomas Frank, uh, John Halstead, who I just met or met again for the first time in a long time, these are folks who have been doing excellent work. So, plug into their organizations, plug into their work. Obviously, it's easy to find people on social media, so you can check this podcast, run it back, catch those names, plug them into Facebook. You'll find these people. You'll see their work. And all it takes is a little bit of effort, folks. So anyway, um, what the hell else do I need to announce? Oh, yeah, good event on January 19th that Dr. Hicks from Gary, Indiana, University Northwest, Indiana University Northwest, the Gary campus. Dr. Hicks, I believe, is a Gary native. Uh, she has invited Dr. Joy DeGroy, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration featuring, obviously, it's not on, uh, it's not today, it's on January 19th. So, yeah, make sure to check it out. This is at Indiana University Northwest with Dr. Joy DeGroy. Thursday, January 19th at 6 p.m. at the Berglund Auditorium. Join us for a celebration of the legacy of Dr. King. Acclaimed researcher, educator, and presenter Dr. Joy DeGroy is the author of Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, America's Legacy of Enduring Injury and Healing. To learn more about the author and her book, please visit her website, joydegroy.com. This event is sponsored by the African American and African Diaspora Studies and Department of Minority Studies support provided by the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Multicultural Affairs. So that's Thursday, January 19th, IUN, Gary. Check it out, 6 p.m. Wanted to announce that for Patricia. Okay, folks, so today we have Paul Street on the program. Paul Street is an independent, radical, democratic, policy researcher, journalist, historian, author, 
and speaker based in Iowa City, Iowa, and Chicago, Illinois. He is the author of seven books to date. Some of those include Barack Obama and the Future of American Politics, The Empire's New Clothes, Barack Obama in the Real World of Power, and also with Anthony DiMaggio, Crashing the Tea Party, Mass Media, and the Campaign to Remake American Politics, and his most recent book, They Rule the 1% Verse Democracy. So, Paul, are you there? Oh, yeah. Hey, Vince. I'm here. All right. Great, man. Sorry I had you on the line for a little while. You had to listen to me ramble. No, I, I liked listening to all that. I realized I knew a couple of those names, including uh, Thomas Frank, who I know from the Open University uh, of the Left, also from Facebook, that great uh, radical revolutionary uh, organizing tool. <laughs> I love, yeah, Paul, Thomas is a great guy. I'm glad that some of these connections are being made, especially with folks in the Midwest. They put on some excellent events. You know, bringing us to some of what we're going to talk about today, and we could just jump right into it. I have no, uh, I have no notes and stuff. Well, I have mean, some, wanna, some notes, but I figured to, we could just talk as we usually talk. I wanted to, because it's King Day, I wanted to make a connection as I was listening to you. Obviously, all kinds of issues, but the, the um, I don't want to say the primacy, but the um, elevation, now the environmental issue, is really sort of <clears throat> pronounced to me. And, of course, we have a whole anti back and pipeline resistance movement here in Iowa, as, as well as the ones that are up in North Dakota, uh, the more, you know, the obvious famous one up in Standing Rock. And uh, really all over all the things that scares me about the uh, scare me about the Trump administration, probably the promise to deregulate energy and just sort of go, you know, whole hog with the greenhouse gassing to death of life on planet Earth is is the biggest one, and I. But anyway, my reflection as I was thinking about King, you know, King had this great phrase that recurred again and again in his speeches and his writings from about 1965 through the end of his life. He talked about the triple evils that are interrelated, and one of them was economic injustice. Which, if you knew King, King was a democratic socialist, meant capitalism. So that was one. Racism, obviously, racial oppression, which. King understood very deeply, not just this sort of like, you know, a bigoted uncle or something, but how the society is set up, how its institutions work. That was the second. And this third was, he would call it uh, militarism, uh, we sort of also meant imperialism, and of course he was against the Vietnam War quite radically, got in all kinds of trouble with the, even people in the civil rights movement because of that. So those are his great three, and he sort of worked through them. And I, I've worked with that trichotomy a lot in my writings on the Obama phenomenon and presidency, which sort of showing how uh, Obama's kind of done a hat trick on all of those and sort of been on the wrong side of each one of them in ways that I think would outrage King, uh, certainly depress him, concern him, um, you know, and the irony being that Dr. King's bust sits right behind Obama's uh, uh, swivel chair in the Oval Office, but if, if King was alive today, I'm quite sure he would expand his list of evils to include, at the very least, uh, patriarchy and sexism, uh, police statism, um, and I think last but not least, uh, ecocide uh, or extractivism, the destruction uh, of the planet. Um, and and I'm really sort of big on the notion that we can't just be hung up on single issues. I mean, we're going to talk about this more later, but as we try and rebuild the left, you know, in the age of Trump and beyond, uh, I think we have to be more many-sided. We have to combine, sort of in that spirit of King. 
Uh, but I would sort of qualify that a little bit with that um, there is kind of this pressing issue of keeping fossil fuels in the ground and averting environmental catastrophe. To me, in many ways, it's sort of overriding now, uh, just in the sense that a lot of the things that all of us on the left and progressives care about, you know, uh, uh, in some ways, I mean, this is tricky, but in some ways they're not going to matter very much um, if we don't avert this kind of looming um, environmental apocalypse. It's a tricky thing to talk about because it scares people. You know, uh, Chomsky just gave a sort of doomsaying speech recently in New York. And, and you know, how we talk about that is, is sort of an interesting issue. No, I agree. I absolutely agree. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine who was sort of making the argument that if we don't start seriously dealing with that issue in the near term, that in the long term he sees more authoritarian government structures, not necessarily out of an organic process yeah. of people demanding it, but that governments, state apparatuses, or bigger institutions will eventually have to step in and simply tell people, no, this is exactly how much we can consume and this is how much we can't. And then that brings oh, in the I've problem. Had, I, I mean, and then exactly not to mention we're talking about myself, moving yeah. around populations. Right. We're talking about migrating sure. populations. Are we going to shut off portions of Florida? I mean, if we don't figure this out democratically, in my opinion, I, I would assume that we're, we will have massive democratic deficits just in terms of trying to move populations around. Yeah, I, I, it's it's interesting. I've, I've seen that out there, you know, in left writings, and I've had that thought myself. You know, the left has always been sort of, uh, I don't even know if we want to use it. I, I do. I cling. I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm time-stamped that way. I cling to the term, the left. And, and uh, But whatever we want to call ourselves, the bottom-up, the 99% struggle the uh, the people's democracy movement, has always sort of been concerned with, um, you know, how's the pie going to be sliced up? You know, we want to inherit the world from the from the wealthy few. We want to turn the world upside down and, and, and inherit it for the, uh, you know, for the for the the masses, the people, the citizenry. Uh, but 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 you know, there's this other issue of uh, who wants to more equally share out a poison pie, right? Who wants to inherit a poison earth? Uh, so it's 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 very critical. It's very crucial that that we realize that's a, that's maybe in many ways our primary issue. Uh, I tend to be skeptical about whether moving to an environmentally sustainable economy is possible uh, under the profit system, under capitalism. But I think I've sort of decided almost uh, tactically, strategically, uh, to be sort of agnostic about that. I mean, I, we don't know until we try. And I'm not sure we have time to wait towards the complete, total, uh, thoroughgoing, grassroots, revolutionary upheaval uh, to, 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 to move very significantly. Uh, off of the, the um, carbon gassing of the planet, or really a lot of other things aren't going to matter all that much. And I, I think you're absolutely right about uh, the authoritarian implications of it all. Well, there's so much, it's so much more. I mean, so what I think about when I think about King is a, is a, a gentleman who is questioning people's principles and values and morals. And I think that's something that we have moved away from on the left, where we now sort of address people just in this, it's almost the same way as you would watch like a, a segment on CNN. It's just policy. You know, maybe there's some ideology embedded within the policy. Maybe there's some ideology unintentionally being spewed by the guests. But at the end of the day, it's just this very basic policy shifts or here we could do this here and this here. And I do think that with regard to the environment, and this is where I do like some of the 
sort of deep green thinking and writing uh, from folks like, say, a Derek Jensen or a Vandana Shiva is that you like to truly deal with this and in, in all of its implications. So not just, say, the carbon, but just consuming normal things, the production of plastics, right. the kind of a carbon economy it would take to fuel right. Uh, a so-called renewable energy economy. And I, so one of the sayings, I'll just leave you with this and I'll see what you would say about this. One of my favorite quotes from Jensen is he would say, any society based on the use of non-renewable energy is obviously doomed to failure, but also any society based on the hyper-exploitation of renewable energy is also doomed to failure. Oh, I think that's uh, I think that's probably right, and I mean I think that um, I love the struggle against the pipeline here, but it's there's a kind of um, I don't know I have a few issues with it, which it always it mentions water all the time. Water is life. We're water protectors. We're we're also climate protectors. <laughs> we're trying to protect all of livable ecology, but for various reasons, the water angle became sort of the politically astute way to go. I understand that. Um, Actually, stop it. Let's say we could actually stop the back of the pipeline. That's going to get a that whole thing's going to get sort of uh, redone now with with Trump coming into the White House. Um, you know, so this issue of how people want to live, you know, and the demand for all these products and this kind of alienated existence based on this just this this utilization of the resources of the earth and. Um, you know, I mean, in this case, particularly petroleum, you know, resources, and then there's this just huge demand. Our whole life is structured around the use of fossil fuels or the use of intensive energy sources of any kind. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I haven't really read those authors you're, you're referencing, but it resonates with me at some level that I, I think we still have this kind of exploitive, hyper-consumerist, kind of alienated way of relating with each other in the world. Uh, we can, we're still going to be in all kinds of deep shit. Uh, even if we were to shift completely off of, uh, you know, the, these raw materials that are um, so toxic in their impact on livable ecology. Well, and two things. I mean, on the on the one hand, I hear people basically making the argument that we can have all of the same shit that we have right now basically with different energy. So it's like the, the Teslas of oh. the world. He's not asking people to re-examine their relationship to the earth or re-examine their relationship to materialism such as king did and such as other people are today um they're basically telling people the bill gates of the world the, the teslas of the world i mean they're basically telling people um oh, i'm sorry not the tight the ellen musk the gentleman who makes the tesla and now he's sure. in charge of the mars thing you know that right. they, they're basically telling people hey we could have all of the same shit we have now Right, just with right. different energy. Don't worry about changing your lifestyle. Yeah. Don't worry my, about changing any of the political systems or the economic systems. We're well, just going to keep everything as we have it, but with new renewable right. energy. Well, what you're kind of what I'm hearing from you, and I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the author. There's an interesting piece uh, that came out on Counterpunch a few months ago that mentioned the word rationing. I said, if we're going to make World War II analogies about the need to completely reconvert our economy, we might want to include in that discussion the, the experience that happened even in the United States, which is relatively insulated from the ravages of World War II, uh, some rationing. Because if anybody thinks we would ever, that, that we're going to be able to replace fossil fuels with renewables uh, in this immediate kind of switchover kind of way without paying any particular price uh, for our lifestyle, they're just living in a dream world. It's just not true. There, there is going to be a reduction of some of the hyper-consumerism, of a lot of it. 
that we right. have. And so, yeah, we, we, we do need to learn how to, uh, many of us, to live with less. And that's kind of a tough thing to say to a population that's been, been having less imposed on them by neoliberalism. Uh, uh, you know, for, uh, for three decades plus, right? Right. Um, so it has to be discussed carefully. But yeah, no, there's, you know, and of course there's so much hyperconsumption in the top, not just 1%, but in the top 20, maybe even the top 33%, that a lot of that, um, there's an egalitarian meaning of that rationing. And, and there was a shrinkage of class differences uh, in Europe and the United States during the war. Uh, because in particular, there will there, we we just cannot carry the consumption levels of these wealthy people anymore, and it's them in particular who are going to have to cons- consume less. I know people with uh, four or five cars, and you know, and uh, very nice, uh, excellent cars. Uh, so I just saw, <laughs> I just saw a very wealthy Chinese undergrad here in Iowa City with a um, with a one hundred fifty thousand dollar car parked in the local come-and-go uh, gas station. I, I, I had such a car, I would not I would take it out for a drive around the block and then put it back quite safely. So, you know, it's, it's really remarkable how much some people have. I mean, 62 Absolutely. people well, have as in, much wealth. In, Planetarily in some... right now, 62 people have as much wealth as the bottom 50% of the human race. I mean, think about that. Yeah, well, did you see the new study that just came out from Oxfam? Yeah. They say that there's eight people. Is that what you just said? I'm sorry. I might have maybe didn't understand it. It's down to, it goes down. The Oxfam does this regularly. You know, last year I saw 68 before. Two years ago it was like 85. You know, so it's, just, it's counting down, right? It'll just, someday we'll get no, down There's to like nine end. people. I think it's today, Paul. If you go on social media, I'm sure you'll exactly. find it. But there was something that's yeah. floating around today that's been viral. It's like eight or nine people. <laughs> eight, eight or nine eight people or nine? have well, more wealth 62. than 3.6 billion. Wow. Well, I, I, the, the, the latest one I'm familiar with is 62, which is I've seen enough uh, in, in and of itself. You know, I, I guess uh, I guess Marx was on to something about uh, capitalism's oh, tendency. Towards the that's what I was going to ask you about. I was going to ask you yeah. about this specifically, because as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, something else I've noticed that we don't do, activists, organizers, even, you know, writers and so on on the left, or just however you want to classify it, is... I think really challenge people with big ideas and not only just challenge them, but to provide people with the concept that we should be thinking big. And for me, someone who's never really considered myself a Marxist, but someone who's appreciated a lot of Marxist work, I, the, the thing that I genuinely appreciate is his ability and willingness to ask big questions and to propose big ideas. And that's something that I feel like we are not, you know, so like with the Bernie stuff, we don't have to get too much into this. I was excited on a, as we've talked about in the past, just personally, I've, I was excited on, on an organizational level. Like it was bringing people into the mix that had not been brought into the mix before, especially oh, yeah. in an area like this Rust Belt area that I live in. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I kept thinking to myself, these aren't really that big ideas. Like free education, free healthcare. I go to Australia or Europe and people I know there are like, yeah, no shit, Vince. Like, what do you mean? You know, like, of course, this is. This is a, a right. known thing. You should have health care. You should have living wage. You should have uh, uh, decent education, not go tens of thousands of dollars into debt. But here, because the bar is so damn low now, I, those kind right. of ideas seem big. But I think that a lot of people sort of 
downplayed or 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 misinterpreted where Americans were, and they thought, ah, this isn't going to catch on Bernie's stuff. I actually think moves beyond Bernie, visions beyond his idea of this democratic socialism, visions beyond that. I think people will find in the coming years there are going to be millions and millions and millions of Americans uh, who can identify with something like that. I don't think we should underestimate people's willingness to buy into big ideas. Well, you know, I thought Sanders underestimated how well he was going to do. That sort of may sound surprising from someone who kind of really came out. I was pretty critical of Sanders himself. Uh, less critical of Sandernistas or Sanders followers than I was of Bernie because I thought he had so many issues on the defense budget and on the empire. And if he, and I, I was so frustrated if he's going to make analogies with Sweden and Denmark and Norway, these social, these great social democratic Scandinavian countries, then he needs to mention that they spend, you know, um, just three or four percent of their discretionary national budgets on the military, whereas we spend, you know, forty to. 50%, some just a god-awful amount of money on the military. So it's a very big issue for Dr. King. And King, by the late 60s, and before he gets shot, is, which is kind of what happens to people who are serious threats to power. It's a sort of badge of honor. I think it's the one sort of assassination theory I kind of get into. But King related all of this to these sort of deep underlying systemic and structural issues. He was very clear about that. This isn't just about policy errors or Republicans, or, you know, or just like mistakes that Lyndon Baines Johnson or Richard Nixon, well, he didn't have Nixon yet, that Lyndon Baines Johnson, I mean, this is really how the system works. And King really harped on that in his last few years. That What is the great line that a, uh, 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 an edifice that creates beggars by its very nature is in need of structural, you know, um, Overhaul, I don't know in the American context how useful it generally is to lead, for example, with Marx. You know, Marx and Marxism sort of as phrases have tended to be, uh, you know, pretty badly slandered and damaged by McCarthyism, and this goes back a very long way. Um, you know, I sort of people ask me if I'm a Marxist sometimes. I say, well, you're sort of kind of like I speak, like I speak English, you know. I mean, some of these basic concepts of class and class conflict and, and, and the profit sure. system and how it sure. works. Yeah, it's just sort of common sense to me. And Marx wasn't the only one. There were any number of European socialists at that particular period of time who were thinking in similar kinds of ways. But, you know, one, one person that I always love to mention is the great U.S. Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who in 1941, one of Franklin Roosevelt's uh, uh, Supreme Court appointees, um, said that the American people have to choose. Uh, we can have wealth concentrated in the hands of the few, or we can have democracy, and we can't have both. Well, you know, that's a wonderful populist kind of thing to say, but there's a radical meaning to it if you understand capitalism and how it works. And you don't have to read Marx. You can look at my ancient Webster's Dictionary, Collegiate, you know, the big, huge volume of Webster's, and it says right in there, in its English language definition of capitalism, that it has an inherent tendency towards the concentration of wealth and ever and ever fewer hands. You can quote like Noam Chomsky does a lot, the great American educational philosopher, um, John Dewey, 
you know, American is apple pie. He ended up supporting world American involvement in World War One, if I if I remember correctly. But he but Dewey used to write about the sort of the same kinds of contradictions. And I'm trying to remember his famous line, but he said as long as power you know, resides in the hands of giant corporations and their agents in the media and in the political sphere and in higher education, then democracy in this country will be a chimera. You know, it'll be a myth. We'll never have it. So, you know, I think you have to be kind of strategic and find people like Tom Paine and Thomas Jefferson and John Dewey and Louis Brandeis and, you know, Bernie Sanders and folks like that to reference to as um, you know, sort of just Trotsky and Lenin, or, you know, sort of endlessly rehashing the history of the Russian Revolution, as some of my sectarian leftist friends like to do, right? I mean, oh, it's just like, you know, like, you know, Lenin and the Bolsheviks in 1917. I was like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no, sorry, right. it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's the stuff. I mean, unfortunately, I've talked to Christian Parenti about this. It's like, you know, the a lot of Marxists ser- serve as like an inoculation to Marxism. So, you know, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a problem. I, I mean, it's a lot of like here. a lot of people are not Marxist. I mean, I think that's probably one of my issues over the years is that I yeah. my first two or three years being involved with movements, I ran into the wrong type of Marxist. And I just I was like, oh, shit, I don't want anything to do with that. But I digress. L- look, the to bring us back to because I could just BS with you for hours. I, I'm supposed to talk to you about Obama and King. So <laughs> let me uh, let me get back here to. uh exactly what I was thinking because I, I was about to go off on a totally different topic about philosophy and, and what you think about developing, you know, truly revolutionary movements and what that would look like from an intellectual angle. But we could do that another day. I I, I want to bring us back specifically to those triple okay, evils. I, I lost you there a second. I'm back. <laughs> I want to, I want to oh. bring oh, you us were back to the whole time. Okay. I, I, I was disconnected there for, for a good 30 seconds. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no problem. No, no, no. Um, I want to bring us back to the triple evils of what King's triple evils of poverty, yeah, militarism, racism, but then also, as you add, ecological devastation, ecocide, and 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 patriarchy. I would simply put the police state under militarism. I like. I maybe that's wrong, yeah. but for me, I think it's sort of a all-encompassing term we could throw like the surveillance state under there and the police state and so on but nonetheless yeah i think you're right yeah it's sort of it's really sort of this is something madison warned james madison used to warn about which did all this kind of um uh, uh, uh militarized energy just uh, uh refracts back on the homeland in an incredibly toxic kind of way well and you know who writes amazing stuff about that is alfred mccoy oh, sure. madison Yeah, no, I mean, and um, I mean, how much of these these military police departments are are dealing with um, are, are are wielding technologies that they bought surplus off of off the Pentagon, right? Right. And right. Um, and well, and given to them as Clinton did after the fall. Right. And yeah. When he came into office. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I uh, I agree with you. I think that's right, and uh, it's amazing the hardware you run into now in mass demonstrations and. Stuff that was first uh, developed in uh, in in overseas military actions, you know, or like the long. They had better gear than we do. Or I'm sorry, they have better gear than we did, Paul. Yeah, (laughs) right. Than you had in Iraq, yeah. Oh God, yes. I mean, when I came home and I'd see the stuff that the police had at protests and demonstrations, I think, my God, that stuff's at least 
four or five times better than the crap we had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I remember the first night protesting the um, Iraq war in Chicago back when it started in 03, and we had thrown the police off, and they went one way, and we went out to the outer drive and owned it. But, boy, the next night, they had everything. They had their, they had all their hardware out. Uh, I don't know if they had long, I don't know if they had sound cannons yet, but they had all kinds of weird looking shit lined up there and and just every building in the loop was was uh was protected by a guy wearing a ninja turtle suit and uh <laughs> and it was just a chilling display. I've yeah. I've I've always been amazed at the hardware these these guys had and I think you're absolutely right. I think this in many ways is a blowback from the uh, from the Empire. Well and it goes so far be- Beyond, I was thinking about what you were saying about Marx and and thinking about corporations, and I think just as a fan, and and uh, I'd say an amateur student of history, I you look back at empires. I mean, I've, I've Chalmers Johnson and some of the more conservative writers, actually Andrew Basevich and others, have turned me on to really wanting to read more about Western civilization, history of empire. And it's the same sure. phenomena. It's ecological devastation. It's the concentration of wealth and power in, in, in highly undemocratic institutions. It's extreme police forcing or uh, police forces, maybe not at that time, called specifically police forces, but, you know, security apparatuses torturing oh, yeah. right. people. Uh, right. yeah, the institutions right. change, of course. You know, at sometimes it's religious institutions that have that concentrated power in today's world. It's corporations. There's this insanely, there's this insanely brilliant environmental sociologist, geographer, and historian named Jason Moore, and he's out at Binghamton University, and he's gone back, and I'm just working off of the eco- ecological reference you've made, but but he shows how every great long wave of accumulation uh, in the capitalist system, back from its beginnings in the 16th century, um, has been tied to a particular or a particular configuration. Of sets of, of of rapacious exploitation of windfalls of cheap nature, you know, of cheap raw materials, cheap food, cheap energy sources that are just sort of rapaciously exploited, uh, including cheap labor power, you know, and the tapping of new human nature labor power, uh, and they're just and they're just uh, exploited until their point of exhaustion which then feeds into the, the collapse of that particular wave of accumulation and an onset of decades of, of relatively slow growth. He thinks we're in one of those sort of right now uh, because climate change, which is an outcome of this rapacious windfall exploitation of fossil fuels, has now so damaged agricultural productivity and so damaged soil fertility that they, they can't seem to really restore a fully functional new wave of accumulation on the basis of cheap food or cheap labor, you know, and it's just sort of stuck with these expenses now. Because then it's nothing new. It go it goes way back. And I've heard of his work. That's another that's another person's work who's uh uh Parenti yeah. constantly references in his stuff. Oh, he's absolutely brilliant, but 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 not accessible to a lot of uh readers who haven't been through god awful amounts of Marx and, and that's a that's a problem okay. leftist okay. left discourse, yeah. So I've always kind of thought of myself as someone who tries to translate between such authors and uh, <laughs> and, and other folks. That's and, odd that's I've long thought yeah. the same thing, man, to be yeah. honest with you. Especially because a lot of the people I spend time around aren't full time activists. So oh, no. right. it's right. been that way for a long time for me. I mean it's been that way actually since I've been involved. I mean I spend 
a good portion of my time, obviously, with people who are doing work. But then, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people in my life that simply aren't. So I've always tried to find a way to, you know, how do you process some of that highly dense material? I mean, I, well, I have a friend think, who turned me on to stuff and, like continental philosophy, you know, people like uh, Lane Badu yeah. and Zizek and all of this. And I enjoy a lot of it. But at the same time... Well, Zizek, I couldn't do. I tried, so I gave up. But but I, I think we have some similarity in that we... we while we very much prefer to have material that, that we can talk to, like everyday you know, folks that we know in daily life, uh, I also don't demonize some of those writers that go into those discourses. I, I, I um, sort of enjoy some of it, and I think that we can rescue a fair amount of it uh, for uh, more general usage you know, and for application. And I think they want that, actually. You know, I, I think at least that's what I picked up. Yeah. Um, from some of these authors, um, you know, some of that disc, that, that those discursive methods are sort of imposed on them by academia. I think. Sure. I mean, they're always just sort of covering their ass with the whole the literature and whatever their field might be. I mean, they're constantly having to demonstrate that they know what every left geographer ever said about such and such, or what every historian said. You know what I mean? It's 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 just it's oh, yeah. a different yep. culture. Yeah, yeah. So. No, no, no. Absolutely. So. To, to bring us back to sure. Obama and King, talk to me about earlier in the conversation you said, and I want because I, I wanted definitely want the listeners to, to hear you talk about these issues, especially Obama because he's on his way out. And obviously I think of anyone who's been out there writing, thinking about talking about Obama, in my opinion, you are the top notch sort of number one guy to go to about it. So what with. King's triple evils, what you added on, which I would agree with, patriarchy, well, let me talk, you know, let me ecocide. Talk about Obama. You know, can, it's, you it's, listen, can you talk can, about Obama's legacy with those? You know, right. You know, the, the first thing, I'm getting some resistance right now on social media now, so I heard even mentioning Obama, which is kind of silly. I mean, of course I know that Trump is public enemy number one. Of course he is. And anyone, you know, there, there's even sort of people on the left who seem happy that Trump got in. I mean, not many, but some. And I mean, I really think they need counseling or something to go away or something like that, obviously. But having said that, obviously, that's our main struggle is going to be with things that are coming out of the Trump administration in coming months and years. But if people want to know how we got there, uh, they're going to have to study some history, including the not very ancient history um, of Barack uh, Obama. And, you know, Obama uh, in the White House sort of epitomized this kind of marginalization of the populace that tends to take place with this kind of electoralist definition of citizenship that is sort of, is sort of doctrine in this country, which kind of says that meaningful democratic participation boils down to going in a voting booth once every four years and making a mark uh, on a brand that you think is the most democratic one of them all, small d, and then going back to your daily life and letting other people run the world for the next four years. And it's, you know, a big mistake. And, and, and Obama, quite predictably, um, you know, really gave us a blunt lesson about power, about who really has it, and, and that the government has all kinds of money to spend on folks who already are rich and very little on the rest of us. He, 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 he campaigned as a progressive, came in, and, and 
took the Bush-Paulson bailout of the very financial interests that had uh, crashed the American or global economy, and he took that bailout and pushed it into the many, many trillions of dollars, really with no strings attached. He called the big Wall Street executives into the White House. They were scared off their ass, told them, I'm the only person between you and the pitchforks out there, and they were scared, and then he smiled and said, I'm here to help you. And that's exactly uh, what happened. And 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 we were all the rest of us left to say, um, um, where's our bailout? We sort of stood by and watched this unbelievable obscenity of these people being bailed out and the rest of us who are underwater and barely making it, really, really not getting much of anything at all. And then he subsequently sort of boasted about it. I, rem- I remember Obama speaking to a, Wall Street Journal CEO Council in 2012 and sort of laughing about it all and talking to these very rich people and saying, you know, this, this is America. Uh, uh, everything's between the 40-yard lines here. We really don't have a left in this country. And uh, if you and, and some of the right wing might call me a socialist, but you guys know better. I'm no such thing. I bailed you out. And not only that, he said, I passed uh, a health care reform that really only the big insurance and the big drug companies could like. It was basically a Republican bill that left their premium gouging, their price um, their price gouging power uh, in place. Uh, the Republicans did not make him do this. He had Democratic majorities in 2009 and 2010. Uh, Republicans did not make him offer uh, Republic, Republicans did not make him offer them more than they even dreamed of asking for on givebacks on Social Security and Medicare during the uh, during the debt ceiling crisis. Republicans did not make Barack Obama spend a good part of his second term pushing this right-wing, arch-corporatist, uh, uh, uber, neoliberal, authoritarian, trans-Pacific partnership um, Bill, you know, I, I, when Obama came in, it was sort of liberal left doctrine that, well, we'll get him in there, and it's going to be like Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We were going to make him do progressive things, um, you know, and he, he did none of them. And, in fact, when there was this remarkable upsurge in the fall of 11 called the Occupy Movement, uh, Obama actually acted with the Department of Homeland Security and with Democratic Party, you know, run government um, coast to coast in all the cities of this country to uh, to to repress and subordinate the Occupy movement. I mean, you know, who, who made him do that? The people who would have made him do progressive things, he crushed them, you know, sort of uh, quite, quite explicitly. So, I mean, everybody was betrayed, which de- and the progressive and the Democratic base is demobilized. Um, the Democratic Party functions, the, a, a Democratic president comes in every once in a while and functions as what um, the late Princeton political scientist Sheldon Wallen calls inauthentic opposition, the sort of pretend opposition. Uh, and everybody gets depressed and they get demobilized. And guess what? Republicans triumph at the polls. They exploit the popular resentment. They sort of walk into that vacuum. We get the Tea Party elections in 2010. We get a right-wing midterm congressional uh, uh, fiasco election in 2014. And we get Donald Trump in 2016. Just like Carter gave Begat Ronald Reagan, 
like Bill Clinton and Al Gore beat at George W. Bush. Barack Obama demobilizes, depresses the Democratic Party's progressive base. Uh, Bernie Sanders tried. He nobly tried to activate that base, but he was defeated, and his defeat helped deactivate the Democratic progressive base. And you get Donald Trump. Uh, and, and every time this happens, the Republican president gets scarier and gets more more insanely far-right and apocalyptic and even now sort of, I don't know, neo-fascistic uh, right-wing. Um, and it was all foretold. Uh, uh, any number of us on the left, and not just people on the left, wrote about, warned about this and said this is this is the real game that's going on and this is what's going on. Uh, to happen. So, I mean, one of the lessons for this is liberals might want to listen more to the left. They also need to pay more attention to what the candidates they glom onto are really saying, you know, in the speeches they give, not just to campus town peaceniks or labor unions, but the speeches that they give to things like the Council on Foreign Relations or the Brookings Institution or the Chicago Council on global affairs. That was an overly long answer to your question. No, 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 absolutely. I mean, that primarily touches on the 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 evil of poverty and capitalism and economic well, it's, inequality. It's, and well, he yeah he did he did he did all of those. He did all of he did all of King's triple evils and more. And really, almost nothing on race. Incredibly reluctant to say anything on race, as I predicted, and as I warned people out about in advance, all while functioning symbolically um, as a kind of last nail in the coffin of many white Americans, uh, already slight willingness to admit that racism is still a factor in American life. I cannot tell you how many whites, Caucasians, of all classes, I have heard say, don't talk to me about racism anymore. It's over. The president is black. You know, right. which is something I was very worried about. Um, uh, um, you know, uh, throughout. So, you know, this is relevant to the Trump phenomenon. You know, people say, well, what's, why are you even thinking about this anymore? Why do you even care about this anymore? Uh, now it's all about Donald Trump. Well, we're just going to repeat that if we don't learn from that kind of history. I think I'd say the same for Jimmy exactly. Carter, and I'd say for, for Bill Clinton. We're just going to recycle that. It is an object lesson about how this time, you know, I want to work with people who were gaga for Obama. I certainly want to work with Sanders people. It, it's fine. I, I'm not going to shame. I don't want to shame them. I, I think shaming is out. I, I, I think we need to just let go of that. Completely. Sure. I don't. I don't want to get into sure. the thing like, oh, you're mad now, but you weren't mad under Obama. You know, it's it's sort of. I had to accept the fact that a lot of people stand out when the Democrats are president, and there tends to be more activism when the president when 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 the president is a Republican. It kind of pisses me off, but I'm over that. It's a fact. I want to work with it and help build movements that will be more inoculated against this overly electoralized definition of what participation is, that you go on a booth once every four years and make a mark. No, it's movements. It's every day. Um, it's about day-to-day interaction with people around issues and building through thick and thin organizations 
that that uh, can fight back and organize citizens' power. And uh, we got to watch out for elect for Democratic Party electoral folks who are going to want to take this. What they do, take movements. They always do this and turn them into a great big get out the vote program for. Well, I don't know who in 2020. I'm thinking Cory Booker. Or come out oh, he might have already been shot down. This is the beauty of the internet. See, this is what's so. wild too these days. I mean, I I think yeah. after this prescription drug thing, he's out of the, he's out of it. Okay. Well, I mean, on, I think things that small be can blow yeah, up right. a whole. I think at this point, the and this is what I think could be a, a positive legacy from from Bernie's campaign yeah. is there's there's a whole half of that party or independents or whoever mixes with the party, especially younger people, sure. who are just going right. to realize now that now a lot of these people are full of shit. You know. No, there's there is something absolutely wonderful going on with with young kids, and in retrospect, I wish I'd been less harsh on the whole Sanders thing. Uh, I, I just couldn't get over this military issue and this defense budget issue with Sanders. Oh, no, believe me, I hear you. you know, I, I also thought he was terrible. <laughs> I hear you, man. I mean, I wrote about it. I I, I hear you there. Yeah. I mean, that was the one thing that uh, it what drives me I nuts he, today because I don't think so. I I agree yeah. with you. I mean, I've always been pragmatic in that way. Hey, let's work with whoever's out here now. I'm happy if you're out here. The the issue isn't so much with people who are doing things; it's with the people who aren't doing anything. We need them to be involved. So I'm not going to jump oh, down people's throats. Such that is such an important point, uh, and I, I I get hit by that in the face again and again. I mean, I almost take an excited, passionate, if confused, Trumpian over really what you run into in the United States more often, which is someone who just doesn't give a shit, right? Right. I mean, that's the real issue, and I, we, we did some leafleting out here a few weeks ago at some of the, the big banks here in Iowa City that fund the back in the, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. It was really interesting. What I found was the main issue, really just trying to connect with, um, with ordinary people, there was, a couple, well, there was a couple of things going on. One which was kind of the moral witness aspect of some of the activists who don't understand that you have to talk to real people on the sidewalk as they're going by. They think it's enough to just hold up a sign and chant. Say, no, here's real people walking by. You now have a chance to talk to them, right. which I would do because I'm from Chicago, so I know how to go out and talk to people and have great conversations with people. But the problem you ran into people was almost never opposition. It, the, the biggest issue by far is indifference. Well, I feel like we've made a huge jump, and I might have talked to you about this just when we were BSing yeah. on the phone or something. But look, the, I yeah. remember – during the Bush years, when I first got involved, people were like, they, they didn't realize some things that were coming. You know, you talk to people, it depends what community you're talking about, too. It depends what issues we're talking about, if we really want to have a serious conversation about this. But the, to make a broad judgment, I would say that when I first became involved with activism, a lot of people kind of thought I was nuts. Whereas now, I talk to a lot of people who are like, yeah, we're fucked, Vince. I mean, it's no longer like, you know, in, in 2008, I feel like, or 2007, I was trying to get that across to people that, hey, we're on the verge of, of, you know, embarking on some very dark times. This is the people I'm reading. Here's the information I have. And this wasn't something I just dreamed up after smoking a pipe. I mean, this was just, you know, you're taking in information. I'm looking at what's happening. And it's like, oh, we're living in a collapsing empire. This is what's happening. 
And now you know, I, just was, I talk to yeah, a lot of ahead. people who aren't involved and they're like, look, I know the, the country's collapsing, the political system's screwed, the environment's screwed, we're fucked. You might as well have a good time or enjoy life now because it's going to be over with. That's what I hear more well, I was going to say, I was going to say, not only indifference uh, was the main, main obstacle I run into, but, but pessimism too and fatalism and just this, this incredible sense of powerlessness. Um, though I am finding with Trump... And I was just at this 60th birthday party with some uh, friends, of, I, I guess you'd say working, white working class background. And, um, you know, someone who's really not said a peep about politics at all for the last eight years, and that's kind of thanks in part to Obama and Obamanism in a campus town, because I'm in Iowa City and just, I, it's just kind of sick the way Democrats put everyone to sleep in campus town. But who said to me, you know, we are absolutely fucked now. With, so he, not just in general, but he connected it with Trump. Trump being it. He's got a, a, a political explanation of why we're fucked. And sounds more interested in being active than I've ever heard him sound. At least since the John Edwards campaign imploded in Iowa in 07 and 08. And that's kind of interesting. There, 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 there's, it, it's... It it, it, it it really is true that, that that Republicans tend to kind of, in the White House, tend to light a fire under people's butts in a certain kind of way. And um, I'm, I'm just making almost a faith-based decision not to be sardonic or sarcastic or, or pissy about that, but instead to embrace it and then try and work with it and try and civilly and decently and appropriately communicate um, some things about how the neoliberalism, and I think that's a key word, if we can get people in the Democratic Party to understand that their party has been run by neoliberals and what that means, that the neoliberals and the Democrats is part of why the Republicans come back every time. I mean, if Obama or Hillary or the Clintons before them had introduced single-payer health insurance and had uh, re-legalized union organizing through card check, through the Employee Free Choice Act, through card check authorization, my guess would be the Democrats would still be back in there. I don't know if the Democratic Party can ever be rejuvenated or restored as any kind of progressive institution. I'm extremely skeptical about that. But I'm also extremely, extremely skeptical about the prospects for third parties in the American political system as it is structured right now. So I tend to be kind of agnostic. I'm, I'm just going to be agnostic about that, like a few other things now. You know, if the left could take over Democratic parties all over the place, that could really happen and become Democratic Socialists. Um, I'm not going to be an asshole about that. Um, and I said, even with all my left criticisms of Sanders, I said very clearly again and again, if he was a nominee, I would have I would have held my nose and voted for a Democrat in the 2016 presidential election. By the way, I'm, I'm pretty convinced Sanders would have won from the exit polling data I've seen. Uh, yeah, barring, no, I think that's I think barring, that's clear. Well, I mean, you know, the other thing I was thinking about though, Paul, is that with the with the Republicans in office, I mean, a lot of this to me though seems. It's less, again, here for me, it's less ideological as much as it is in terms of just the pragmatic, what pragmatism of what people are doing and the organizers that I'm speaking to. And something that's been pointed out to me over the years is that under Democratic presidents like Clinton, you have interesting movements like the anti-globalization movement uh, uh, culminating in the Sea of Battle for Seattle. And then you have 
under Bush, yeah, you have a lot of people engaged, but it's primarily against Bush and Cheney and the Republicans because it becomes very personalized and very tribalized. Like, you know, are you on this team? Are you on that team? And then under Obama, so while there wasn't mass mobilizations, I thought that the things that popped up under Obama were much more interesting than what popped up under Bush because you have Occupy, you have Black Lives Matter, you have a sort of resurgence in the environmental movement, you have new indigenous activism sort of connecting with veterans. A lot of that stuff to me was a lot more interesting than what took place under Bush. And I'm assuming what's going to take place under Trump, because with someone like this in office, I feel like we're just going to be putting out sort of spot fires uh, where it's just like these well, you know, crazy the shit that's going to come up every week or two weeks. And we're just going to have to be out there opposing whatever madness is proposed. The, the upside of having a Democrat in the White House is it's very instructive about the bipartisan nature of the system. People are much more likely to think structurally and institutionally. They sort of, you know, it's still young people. They get this good living historical You've lesson got, in their own uh, lives. Two minutes, that, okay. Yeah, life still sucks when there's a Democrat in it. And that's a really important lesson. I, I, I believe the pollsters. I thought we were going to have Hillary. I thought we were going to. I thought we were going to keep having that lesson. I was looking forward to that. I thought there'd be a left opposition to Hillary. Um, so, you know, and, and one of the great downsides with the Republican in the White House is it does, you're right, it feeds this narrative that everything that's wrong in the country um, is with, um, you know, is if there's a Republican in the White House, and therefore the solution is a get-out-the-vote program for a Democrat. But there's this other energy, particularly early in the first term of a Republican president. I think we need to work with it, educate people, talk about these kinds of issues, and not let it be that kind of thing. I don't see where we have any choice. I mean, uh, uh, these are environmentally sort of desperate times. Um, we're really well, going to be less about game. personalities, too, and more about institutions. Absolutely. In my Absolutely. All right. Well, shit, we could, I could have went another hour or two with you. All right, Paul, oh, thanks a lot. We we're yeah. just speaking with Paul Street. Thanks for coming on the program, brother. We will talk soon. We'll be in touch. Bye-bye. All right, folks. You can catch us next week. I'm going to have a recording that I recently did an interview with journalist Charles Glass about his book, Syria Burning. Uh, we'll have the podcast up, I'm sure, pretty soon with Paul Street. Thanks for tuning in. As always, you're listening to the Progressive Radio Network. I am Vince Emanuele, host of Meditations and Molotovs, where you could find us here every week at 1 p.m. Central Time. Organic mechanics. Organic mechanics.